everything just got too much for me around September of 2020. And, and uh, I was coming up on seven years. And you know what? Like, it's seven years, but it's not really. Mm. You know, it isn't really. You were chemically sober, but you weren't on the journey to recovery. I wasn't emotionally mm. sober whatsoever. Mm. I was still behaving like an addict. I'm Dr. Mark Rowe, and welcome to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. As a family physician, my expertise is supporting people in the areas of positive health and lifestyle medicine. Join me in conversations that share life lessons, health habits, and leadership practices, focusing on positive psychology, lifestyle medicine, and ways that enable you to live with more vitality on purpose. Appreciating that when it comes to your vitality, that everything is so interconnected. Episodes will air weekly, and you can find me wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, on my website, drmarkrow.com. As a practicing family doctor with expertise in lifestyle as medicine, my purpose is to encourage and support you in terms of positive health, personal growth, and all things well-being. As I say, to never stop starting. Each month on a live webinar, I teach learning by doing and learning by being. The why and the how of health enhancing habits, giving you the science as well as support strategies to live with more vitality. I'd like to invite you to join my self-development club. To learn more and to sign up, visit drmarko.com. Tony Kelly is a comedian, a writer, actor and filmmaker from Waterford, Ireland. A graduate and noted alumnus of the New York Film Academy, his debut stand-up album, P.S. I Hate You, was released in 2012. His credits as an actor to date include Netflix's The Alienist, BBC's Primeval, as well as starring in his feature film and debut as director in The Hurler, A Campion's Tale, which is based on his multi-award winning web series and play. Welcome, Tony, to the Doctor's Chair. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. It's good to be here. I'm delighted. Tony, I want to start by by looking back. Sure. And I've known you for a number of years now, and you've come through some tough times, addiction, adversity, mm-hmm. and yet you're still here. And I really admire that about you. But could we just look back and could you tell our listeners just about that experience for you? I suppose, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm flirting with uh, sobriety and recovery since I'm about 24 or 25, maybe. And uh, Mm. I'm, uh, as we sit here today, I'm 36. Uh, I, I'd love to say that um, when I was that age, I was living in New York at the time. I was studying at the New York Film Academy. Uh, I'd just broken into the world of stand-up. Uh, I was doing some of the big clubs in New York during my first year, which I won't say is unheard of, but it's. Uh, I, I was lucky to get the opportunities that I was getting, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I suppose I was living out of home and out of the country for the first time at, at 23, 24 years old. And I just started kind of flirting with um, prescription medications and, and stuff like that. Uh, I, there was other drugs and stuff involved uh, and a lot of binge drinking, like a, mm. a lot of binge drinking. Um, and somewhere, I suppose, at that time, the line between doing that on a night out and doing that just because most of the time kind of got blurred. And that was, I suppose, the start of it for me uh, when I realized I had an issue, probably the second year in New York or in 2010. And as I said, like, I would have loved to say that, oh, I, I realized I had a problem and I, I got the help that year. And, you know, I've been clean and sober since I was in my mid-20s. But unfortunately, that isn't the case. Um 
And I suppose uh, I did realize I had an issue, but I couldn't quite get a hold on it. I felt like I was too young. I, I felt like, ah, you know, maybe it's just a phase. I couldn't be an addict. I couldn't be an alcoholic, whatever you want to label it. That, that couldn't be me. I mean, my, I come from a good family. I could from a, come from a good household. Mm. Surely I couldn't be this, you know? And I, I kind of fought with that for a while. And I think around 2013, I think it was, what I now kind of realize is what we would call the disease of alcoholism or the disease of addiction, mm -hmm. which is people don't really understand. People think an alcoholic is the bomb sitting on the side of the street drinking from a paper bag. Whereas, as you know, Mark, you know, the World Health Organization recognizes addiction, alcoholism as a disease. You mm -hmm. know, and we call it the disease of the mind. Like you can be sober, chemically sober if you want, um, but the disease is in the mind. It's the thinking. It's it's mm -hmm. it's trying to almost get you from, from the inside. Like I was really struggling with that at around 27 and. I'd had a relapse again after maybe a year and a half of of, of chemical sobriety. I suppose I was I, I was I was pretty much insane. My thinking was insane. My behaviours mm -hmm. were insane. And uh, I started. I, I I looked into a couple of fellowships and stuff like that that they have um, for recovery. And what was the tipping point for that for you? I had myself convinced that I could have a drink. Mm. It was only the fact that I was taking prescription medications in such copious amounts that was the problem. I had myself convinced and I decided the summer of 2013 that I could have a shandy maybe. So I started that way and uh, I was only telling this story the other day to someone. I was congratulating myself to everyone. I was sitting down with my shandy drinking it at my friend's 30th at the time and I was like, look, look, look there's no problem here. Look mm -hmm. at this. And then I said, no, I won't have another drink till my birthday in August. This is on mm -hmm. the 4th of July, I remember. And uh, on the 9th of August then, which is my birthday, I had three points with that same friend and I sat there boasting, look, there's three points now and I'm going to go home. Could If I had a problem with drink, could I go home? Mm. And uh, that was August. By November, I was drinking in my room when everyone else was in work. Mm. I was taking pills again and my life was completely out of control. You know, I, I remember going out one night, I had watched a boxing fight with two friends. I don't remember even watching it. It was um, Carol Frotch, George Groves, it was the first fight they had. And I don't remember. It was an epic boxing match. And I don't remember it. I just remember being, mm. you know, not good. And I drove into town. I remember driving into town after taking a load of tablets, um, kind of admonishing my friends for not coming with me, giving out to them, you know, and they knew what was going on. And uh, I drove into town and I remember being in there and I had a, I insulted just a lot of people who I knew and ran into. It, was, mm. it wasn't me. It wasn't really me, you know. I remember waking up the next morning and feeling that shame that you always feel after something like that and going, I can't do this anymore. Went down to my parents and said, listen, I'm after being back, you know, and they, I'm after being back using or whatever again. And they said, well, you know, you think we don't know that, obviously, you know. So they were like, you know, you have to go to treatment. And I I, I had advised going to rehab at, at all costs. It was, you know, in, when, in 2010, when I was 24, 25, I was like, I'm too young. I can't possibly go there. Mm. Then I'm 27 and I'm still trying to avoid it, you know, saying, no, uh, no, no, I'll, I'll do it myself, you know, looking for an easier, softer way, Mark, you know. Mm, it's something I see a lot, you know, as a doctor, people who clearly drink too much, but they live in denial mm -hmm. because they don't believe that they have a problem. They don't think they drink more than anyone else or look sure everyone else is the same at weekends, etc. For me, from what I see from being around a little while and from being back around a little while, and we will obviously get to that as well. But like, for me, it's a comparison thing. If I can find someone who's worse than me, then mm. I can't possibly put the label on me. Mm -hmm. And I see, and I'm not even speaking about me, I'm speaking about other people that I see, but I did it as well. Like when I was in New York and I, I spoke about that at the start, I overdosed twice in 24 hours 
My God. You know, and I don't know how I made it out alive. I really don't. My girlfriend at the time, Elise, she won't mind me naming her. We're still very good friends uh, to this day. She just got engaged actually a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, it's it's nice to be kind of, I suppose, still having a friendship and stuff. You know, she, you know, she she came home anyway. We were, we were living together out of necessity, really. You know, it was New York. We, we were both living in dorms and then our, our time in the dorms was finished and we got an opportunity to get an apartment and we had no one else that we knew was going to move in and we, we went in together. But anyway, she came home from a night out one night and found, found me overdosing on, on the floor mm. of the apartment. You know, only for that, only for she came home at that exact moment, I wouldn't have made it. And whatever madness I was in at the time, I checked myself out of the hospital when I woke up, walked back and and overdosed again, mm. you know, in the same 24 hours. And then, um, yeah, you know, waking up in the hospital two, two days later after that, like when you, when I tell that story, people go, all oh, right, that's what got you so. I'm like, no, I went on for another, you know, however many years after that and tried it again a couple of times after that. You know, when I, that's madness. Like that's the madness of the, of addiction. That's, about, the, that's the disease of addiction, isn't sure. it? That it, it leads you on this journey of chaos, chaotic, yeah, chaotic self-destruction. Unmanageability, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, but when I look at that now, I don't know how I, I I wasn't convinced that I had this disease or this problem or this whatever you want to call it, but I had I convinced myself, you know. So um, 2013, I convinced everyone that I could do it myself. I started attending f- different fellowship meetings and and doing that, and that kind of, I kind of strung that along for about two years maybe and then you know I, my life started coming together a little bit you know mm-hmm. uh, I did The Hurler for the first time which is the, the the movie I just did and I started winning a couple of awards I went to Hollywood and I won a big award for it over there and I kind of went well hang on now you know I've got this award from Hollywood I'm in Universal Studios there's people who want to work with me uh, I've got a at the time you know I had a, a, a girlfriend who you know and well I have my life together you know what do I need going to the like, you know and why am I sitting in a room with these people mm-hmm. who don't have their life together? maybe I'm not like them you know and I, mm-hmm. I still can convinced myself yes I have the problem but I'm different than all mm, the others I'm special yeah you know which is apt, which is which is actually insane but I now realize it's that disease it's the mm. thing you know you don't need that you know and went from you know me working on myself a couple of times a week then it became I'd only do it when I had a real problem you know when I was about to really hit the fan I then I'd go about it again and then eventually I suppose during COVID it just caught me mm. it just caught me you know it, it finally got me and, and won I had a lot of chaos going on in my life. It was completely unmanageable um, through decisions I made myself, really. You know, I, I would never blame anyone else for it. You know, yes, I allowed people into my life that I shouldn't have left in, you know. And when I allowed them in, uh, I suppose I didn't respect myself enough to make certain decisions about that. Uh, and then I think, I suppose the best way to, to describe it would be like the analogy of the man spinning the plates, you know, just going around like with having... 20 plates spinning in the air and trying to attend to them all at once. Eventually, it's going to come crashing down, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it just, uh, it, it everything just got too much for me around September of 2020. And and uh, I was coming up on seven years. And you know what? Like, it's seven years, but it's not really. Mm. You know, it isn't really. You were chemically sober, but you weren't on the journey to recovery. I wasn't emotionally Mm. sober whatsoever. Mm. I was still behaving like an addict. I think that's a great term, emotional sobriety. Mm -hmm. And of course, it applies to so many things in life, not just addiction. Um, To be able to, you know, pause before you respond, not to be a hothead, not to react, Mm -hmm. to be in control of your own emotions. Yeah, like I heard that term emotional sobriety over the last two years and it's really resonated with me because it sums me up perfectly. Now, and here's the thing as well. And, I, you know, 
I was doing my podcast, which I had you on, you know, my head is wrecked and stuff. And that was great at the time. Mm. But there was two things about it, right? Number one for me, it was, I was having these people on, not yourself, because you were coming on more of an advisory role, you know, mm. but even take the last one that I did with Tony Evans, the, the, the journalist from the Times, you know, he's a big Liverpool fan. Mm. That's how we, we got to know each other. Like both of us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> at the risk of having people turn off. But, you know, myself and Tony uh, became friends and he's a great man, you know, and I had him on talking about his experience with Hillsborough and, mm. and he was there. I think he was at Heysel as well, but we ended up, the conversation steered towards him having PTSD, possibly towards him never doing the therapy and then him reflecting, maybe I should. And I was taking on all those stories. Mm. And I was not in a place to even look after myself. Yes. I was interviewing these people about their mental health. It was destroying my mental health. I remember my agent at the time saying, yeah, this is great. It's doing really well. It was number one or number two every time it would come out in the podcast um, health charts. Mm. But she was like, but you're not a psychologist. You're not a doctor. You know, you go, I'm, I, oh, I'm fine. And I go back to the plates. I'm grand. It'll be fine. It's doing well. It's grand. You know, I just, there was that. And the second thing about it was like that I was talking about sobriety and I was talking about recovery and I was doing, I, I was, te I was terrible. My head was mm. destroyed. You know, I was allowing things happen in my life that I should not have allowed to happen. I was quite frankly abusing prescription medications, mm. but doing it because I had a prescription, you, you know. And unfortunately that's, that's a trap some doctors fall into as well. You know, they're listening to people all the time, but they, they don't follow the advice they're giving. And you look at the statistics in the Western world, so many doctors fall prey to addiction and yeah. You know, they just self-neglect as opposed to self-care. It's very, very common. And it's funny you should say that now because like, look, obviously I come from a world of comedy and this is a serious conversation, but it has to be kind of funny as well. Like the minute you said that about doctors being, you know, falling prey to addiction, my head immediately goes to imagine being a doctor and you'd have your own prescription. Now I know it's illegal to write your own prescriptions, mm, oh, absolutely. But, but my head immediately just like, I'm, I'm, I was at a meeting this morning, you know, I talked to someone else in recovery on the way out to your house and immediately I'm sitting here going, imagine being able to write your own mm. prescriptions. Like that's where it's at for mm. me. I mean, one of the oldest ideas in, in, in medicine is physician heal thyself, but I mean, that doesn't apply to writing your own prescriptions. Yeah, well, of course. Absolutely but, not. But to what, to what I was saying, like I was, I was, I did a, my first podcast that I did was me boasting essentially about being six years sober. Mm. And at the time I had been prescribed a drug called Zopiclone to help me sleep mm. on an aeroplane. Cause you know, you know yourself, I struggled with the flying thing, mm. right? But I was given that to take one on a plane and one on the way back. I wasn't taking it because I couldn't cope with a Tuesday afternoon, mm. you know, which is what I was using them for you know, or taking one on a Sunday night because I felt a bit stressed about a conversation mm. I just had, you know, and then waking up the next day, not knowing what I've said in a conversation. Can I just get back to what you said there about, you know, boasting about being six years uh, sober as mm. it were, whereas really recovery is a journey, isn't it? Yeah. It's, and it's lived, I know this from so many patients, it's lived day by day by day by day. Oh, yeah. And you to get ahead of yourself and say, look at me, I've done this, mm -hmm. I'm so great. Uh, it's really the the untamed ego, isn't it? It was ego running wild, mm. you know. It was which is a danger, isn't it? Massive danger because again, um, I went in, and this is skipping forward a little bit, but as you know, I went into rehab. You know, you were mm. instrumental in that as well. You know, in November of 2020. But the ironic thing was, my sober date, quote unquote, at the time was the 24th of November. Uh, my podcast came, was launched on the 24th of November in 2019. And then on the 24th of November, 2020, I checked into rehab. It was the day mm. I was, I was admitted. So I do believe in, you know, coincidence and this thing happens for a reason and numerology and stuff like that. So there's definitely something around that date for me. Mm. 
But yeah, I, I just, I think I was, I didn't look, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know. Was I trying to convince myself? Was I trying mm. to tell everyone I'm okay when I was absolutely the mm. pits? I was not okay. Something happened. I don't know what it was. Something happened in my head in around July of 2019. It felt like something broke. I remember the day specifically. I remember everything I did that day. Mm. And I'm, I'm quite private. Like I know I'm on social media and I show a lot, but I don't really talk about like my relationships. Like I was, I was dating a girl for nearly five years and um, we never did anything publicly about that. You know, I never posted on social media about it. And maybe that was a mistake. I don't know. Maybe it affected the relationship. You know, I'm proud to say she's one of my best friends to this day as well, you know, and Shauna and like, I don't know, like, I just feel like July 2019, something cracked, as I said to you, in my head. Mm. I remember what happened. There was some family stuff going on at the time. I couldn't handle it, but I just didn't know how to handle anything, Mark. You know, mm. anything that happened was just a big, massive deal. And I think that's why we firstly, we need to be able to know ourselves well enough to know when we're out of kilter. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we need to be able to deal with stress and have great strategies to recharge from stress. And I think thirdly, we need support around us. We all need people around us, don't we, Tony, to keep us... Yeah, for me, that third one is is the biggest one. Fellowship for Mm. me is the biggest one. I know now, and I know at the time, there'll be so many people that can pick up the phone and say, look, this is what's going on instead of reacting, you know? Can can I ask you, Tony? I mean, I I meet so many people who struggle with alcohol or cocaine or both. And the challenge and opportunity for me, obviously, as a doctor is always to encourage somebody to look at the impact it's having on their life, to to seek help, to Mm. maybe take the road less traveled, to take better care of themselves and, yeah. and and to get help and support when it's having a negative impact on their lives. And sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. But obviously we're living with an epidemic of alcohol abuse, yeah. an epidemic of cocaine. For young people listening to this, for parents of teenagers listening to this, what, what advice would you give? Um, I, like, I, I don't know if I can advise Mm. But I can certainly talk about what has worked for me and what continues to work for me. As I said, like that July, I was sober, I don't know, going on six years at that time. And something clicked in my head that day. And I believe that's when my relapse started that day. I do believe that. Like I ended the relationship. That's why I brought that Mm. up. I ended that relationship uh, just because, you know, I I allowed the the bit of work that I was doing at the time. Like, you know, hosting a local radio show, doing some voiceover work and, and, and treating it as if it was the most important thing in the world. The paranoia, as you know, took over. Everyone was out to get me. I thought everyone was trying to steal everything I had, whether it be mm. my position or the people in my life. I just had this thing that everyone was out to get me. Everyone was either talking behind my back. Everyone was trying to screw me over, cheat mm. me in some way. I genuinely believe that for the longest, longest time. And I now know what that is. Again, it's going back. It's that disease, you know? Mm. I thought I was crazy. Mm. And, you know, I, it's not that like at all. I th- that was just the most difficult thing for me to get was that not everyone is evil. Not everyone was out to get me. Not, you know, and and that's, I still struggle with that a little bit to this day. Other people. Trust. Tr- oh yeah. It's Trust huge, issue. huge for mm. me. Um, Always has been, to be honest. But like, mm. you know, I, I now know through the work that I've done and, you know, I went to Asheree, which were uh, like, that's, that's something I would recommend to anyone who mm. thinks they have it. They I, do I, wonderful work there. I, I honestly owe my whole life. Like I, from that July of 19 until probably still when I got out a little bit, but definitely for a year and a half, 
you know, I didn't think I was worthy of being alive. Mm -hmm. And I definitely said, well, you know, I, I can't be alive for that much longer. This can't continue. It was just very, very difficult. Here's the thing about it as well, Maggie, you're talking about the young people today. Like, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, well, it's only a few drinks. It's only a few lines. It's only mm -hmm. a few whatever. For me, it was, I'm very sneaky when I'm in that. I can hide it so well. Mm -hmm. You know, when I had my relapse, nobody knew. Mm -hmm. and I was, I was taking 20 plus Valium or Xanax or whatever a day at the time again, you know, and when my addiction was at its worst, I was, I, I could take 40 in a day. And denial is part of the illness. Of course. And, and putting on the masks and pretending mm -hmm. everything's okay or pretending it's not. And, you know, outward appearances being, you know, or, or hiding it. And, you know, or t maybe Tony's just going through a bad few days. He's a bit grumpy. He's a bit off, you know, but it wasn't any of that. I was, you know, fully, fully there. But yeah, it's just so easy to get swept up in it. And because we live in a culture of party and session mm -hmm. and, it being cool and you can buy a, you can, you can buy a sign in pennies. Hey, it's wine o'clock. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's all, it's, it's really covert. An analogy I often use when we're talking to people is the frog analogy. And, and this is with respect to all nature lovers out there. But imagine a frog jumps into a pot of boiling water. He's just going to hop out straight away. But if he's in a pot of, of cold water and the heat's turned up very slowly, he'll be boiled alive. Yeah. And I think that's what happens people with alcohol is it creeps up on them insidiously. They don't see it coming. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the bottle of wine that's open in the evening, uh, it turns into two or it turns into nearly every night and it creeps up. And that can have such a devastating impact on people's health and well-being long term. Like when I think about the fact that, look, not everyone is an alcoholic who drinks, not, like obviously not, and not, not everyone is a drug addict who takes drugs. Like that's, that's a really hard conversation to have. You know, mm -hmm. I know people and genuinely I have friends who I know are, no, they would never say it to me or do it in mm. front of me. And I, was, I love them for that. But I know people who use drugs once a month mm. and can take it and, and just leave it. And I'll be honest with you, and I'll be, or will be 100% honest, I'm jealous of them. I mm. wish I could, mm. but I can't, you know, because they can do it, have a good night and go home and leave it. Well, it's the first drink causes the problem, isn't it? There you go. And the, the, the first key. line or the first, first habit, whatever. whatever it is. I cannot have the drink, the drug, the whatever, without my whole life being ruined. There's a line I learned um, years ago. Um, the man has a drink, the drink has a drink mm -hmm. and the drink has the man. Yeah, that's it. And that's the sequence. Yeah. And, and often the, the key is not to have the first one. Yeah. But just even to go back to the advice thing, like mm. uh, that you asked me there, because I don't think I properly answered you. Like, um, I, w I think if you, if you feel like you have a problem and how, how you would answer that for me is, is your life unmanageable mm -hmm. because of what you're doing? And that can be any of the addictions, gambling, uh, drugs, alcohol, love. Mm -hmm. sex, whatever it is, you know, mm -hmm. like codependency, you know, I've mm -hmm. had my issues with that mm -hmm. as well. And I've done the work on it. I continue mm -hmm. to do the work on it, you know, and it's all comes down to, because for me anyway, Tony was never enough. What if someone knows I'm not enough? Like feeling you're not enough and then go, what mm -hmm. if someone knows this? I'm going to have to overdo it to make sure that they don't. And also overdo it to make sure, as I said before, no one screws me over again. Mm -hmm. No one, you know, no one takes advantage of me again. And that's what my life was like, constantly on the defensive. Mm -hmm. It's not like that today. Thank God. Because as I said, I recognized that I had a problem when I was 24. I wish I listened to the advice I was given then. I do. I didn't. And that was my journey. And it's fine. I wouldn't be where I am today if all the things that happened to me didn't happen. So I wouldn't change a thing, probably. Probably. But, you know, if you do think you have a problem, all I will say is, number one, the help is out there. And it's mm -hmm. never been easier to get the help, by Absolutely. the way. And number two is, I, again, I can only speak from my thing. My life is so much better today than it was at any point in my life. 
at any point before I started using, while I was using the couple of years where I had the chemical sobriety, but not the emotional sobriety. My life today is so much better than at any other point in my life. I'm not having a great day today. I'm not having a great day today, even on the way out here. That's why I was on the phone. But it's still way better. And I mean this, it's way better than any day in that mind that I had before. If I that know makes sense. It does. And I know from talking to you before that gratitude is very important for you. Mm-hmm. It's massive. It's hugely important. It's like, like I said, like I, I won't look, I've had some stuff happen that I wouldn't wish on anyone, but am I grateful it happened? I, it's hard for me to say that for most things, but I'm grateful for the journey mm-hmm. because again, the gifts I have today and that I've been given and, and, and I'm continuously receiving, I wouldn't have this disease of addiction or whatever way you want to put it again, had me, I couldn't, I couldn't look you in the eye and talk to you because I didn't think I was, I was good enough, you know, and I, I speak with a couple of members or, or whatever, our friends that I know who have the same thing, you know, even for me walking through town, not worrying about who I'm going to see is a huge thing for me. Mm. Like that might sound weird to people listening, you know, just walking into town or, you know, being, being anywhere, being at a concert, mm. being at a sports match, being in, a, being in Dublin and meeting someone, oh no, are they going to think of me when I walk away? What do they think of me as I'm walking up to them? Mm. I better pretend I don't see him. I don't have that in my life today. And that probably sounds crazy, but that's what it used to be like. Mm. You know, not even thinking you're enough to say hello to someone. So you're grateful for the journey. Mm-hmm. You're grateful for the experiences, reframing them through the lens of who you've become, as you said. And grateful for the support you're receiving from other people. Yeah, I think I think if there is no gratitude, then there's nothing really. Mm. Because I again, I think back to that time. And if I think back to like 2019, just, just into before the pandemic, mm. uh, there was no gratitude in my life. It all felt like worry constantly. It felt like the, the sense of impending doom every day that I woke up. And I share this as well, like with people. I thought having a pain in my stomach with worry constantly, a pain in the chest, going to bed, waking up, constantly having that feeling like I'm hand- on the edge of a cliff hanging on by my fingernails was what my personality was and not realizing that, that was mental illness. You know, that's not the way you're supposed to feel. That's not a personality trait, you know. Uh, and again, even the good things that had happened back then, I had no gratitude for. It just felt like, a whew, okay, that that worked. Well, what's going to happen next? Just constant. Mm. Whereas now, now it's kind of like I'm whatever work I do, I'm grateful to do that work. Whatever mm. happens to it doesn't necessarily matter to me. It's the fact that if I'm happy about who's in my life, what I'm doing with my life and the work that I'm doing. I'm just grateful to be doing that. Mm. I say this every morning, little affirmation, like I'm, I'm grateful when I wake up that I'm clean, that I'm sober, but that I'm sane, you know, because my mind has the tendency. If I let my mind win on certain days, I'm not sane, you know, and, and that's that's kind of where I, I am, I'm at. Well, you know, to, to have peace of mind, as I say, or, or perhaps even peace from mind, I'm just thinking of that line, uh, listening to you now, I think that's priceless. Yeah, it, it really is. Like when I went into Ashari, I, I, oh man, I, Mark, you saw me like, you know what I mean? In the weeks leading up to it, um, partly necessary because that's part of the thing you have to do to get in, but partly, partly necessary for Ashari, partly necessary for me. And like the paranoia I was living with in September, October, 2020 is like, looking back on it now, I can't believe it was even there. Like I remember I used to have to get up in the morning before the postman would come to make sure there wasn't a poison letter coming in the door. See, I, I genuinely sat at the chair that we have in our house at the window, looking out the window because I thought someone was coming to kill me. Mm. I thought people were coming to get me every day, looking for revenge on me or whatever. I mm. was properly gone. I had, like, you know, you mm. diagnose me. I had a nervous breakdown, you know. Mm. Uh, there's ga- I live in, uh, an, you know, a nice area in Waterford. I won't say where, just in case, mm. but like, you know, my parents live in a nice area in Waterford. My parents had to take me home to their house at the time. 
uh, to look after me because, you know, couldn't be left alone. And I was sitting in their house looking at the window. There's a lot of guards that live, guardy, that police, you know, for mm. international listeners that that uh, that live in our area. And it's funny now looking back, it wasn't funny at the time. Like, so obviously there's a lot of squad cars passing up and down. Like, I was convinced the guards were coming for me. Mm-hmm. They were going to come and get me, that there was something, someone going to come, that there was going to be a bullet coming through the window. I had all this, like, that's what mm-hmm. I was living with, mm-hmm. you know. So when I went into Ashari, this only happened to me uh, last, during the week, actually. I found a notebook that I kept in there and I wrote a list of things in one of the back pages that I would like if I got through the 28 days in there and got my life back together. And two weeks ago, I received my my medal that you get you mm-hmm. know, after going through the program. And I, I found it the day after. And there was about 12 things written on the list. And other than, I think, two of them, I've gotten them all now within a year and a half. And they weren't, the only two things I didn't get, by the way, are material things that I would like, not necessarily for myself, but for members of my family and stuff mm. like that. The third thing on the list was peace of mind. Mm. You know, the third thing yeah. on, the piece, on, the, on the thing was peace of mind, because I saw what happens when your peace of mind can be taken mm. or when you allow it to be taken or you give it away or whatever mm. way you want to put it. It's, 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 I don't think there could be anything worse than being kind of like, a, not necessarily a prisoner in your own mind, but like for your mind to be battling against you and telling mm-hmm. you those things, mm-hmm. it's scary, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I now know the price of peace of mind and I would rather have nothing except that. That would be the, if I, Absolutely. If that, it's just, you know, very grateful for the stuff that's happened this year, like with doing the movie and I've worked so hard for so many years for that kind of, for that to come together for me. But genuinely, it does nothing without peace of mind. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Could you give our listeners three ideas, three take-homes for that sense of peace of mind, Tony, or for, for a resilient mindset, three things that you would feel are important? Um, again, I can only speak for me, you know, so for me, uh, there's certain things I need to do to keep my recovery up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're not supposed to necessarily talk about it publicly, but like I do what people who have addiction problems do, like, you know, those the, the, where we meet up and we have a chat, those things, mm. uh, I have to attend a certain amount of them a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I don't get the exact amount that I need, it's like my medicine. That's your support. It is my support. support structure. It's, it's like, mm. it's, I call, I say it's like a diabetic need their insulin. I need mm. those, mm-hmm. those things that I attend, you know, uh, those mm-hmm. meetings I attend, I need to do at least three, at least three of those a week, sometimes four or more. That's number one. Number two, it's about opening my mouth. Like today, I, I haven't been feeling, I just feeling a bit off is all mm. for the last couple of weeks. And it's not every day, you know, but this time mm. it's been two days in a row and I, I'm not having that. Like I don't live my life that way anymore. Mm. So I had to make a phone call today to mm. someone who understands, you know, it's, it's that, it's about, you know, it's about open, it's about talking, I suppose. You know, I, I have learned that you don't have to live your life with a pain in your head, a pain in your chest, worrying. That's not how you're supposed to live mm. your life. That's not normal. If you have a problem, if you have something going on for you, make a phone call and tell someone, get advice. So it's tuning into awareness, being aware of how you're feeling. Mm-hmm. And if you're feeling a bit off, as you said, mm-hmm. don't suppress it. Mm-hmm. Don't repress it. Reach out, talk to somebody, connect, share how you're feeling. Yeah, because one of the things I will say as well is that like um, about a week or two before I went into rehab in Ashari, I had a visit from from someone who I, who I know from those circles, the recovery circles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I told him everything that had gone on for me, you know, to, that led to the relapse and the nervous breakdown and all that kind of stuff. And he said to me, you know, this would have never got any further if you had continued with your recovery properly. You know, if I had checked in with people like him, if I had gone to, you know, the fellowships and stuff like that, if I'd kept that going, one phone call to someone telling them how out of control my life was getting or how I was allowing things into my life, it would have been stopped because they would have said, no, you can't have that. And it would have been gone. Mm-hmm. 
But because I wasn't checking in with those people doing the right things, it just snowballed. Mm-hmm. You know, now I don't have that. If I feel like something is off, I can make a phone call and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this or this happened yesterday. What would you think of this? And mm-hmm. I can get immediate feedback, you know? Like Russell Brand wrote a book on recovery and the steps and stuff like that. It's for everybody. It's not for addicts. It's not for people who are in a 12-step recovery program. And I'm really interested in that because the 12 steps of whatever fellowship you're in can be applied to your life no matter what. It's not a, you know, it's about coping with the mind. It's not, you know, it's about living your life in the best way possible. I read his book when I was in rehab as well. And like, that to me is really important because you can work those steps in your life, even if you don't have a problem or don't feel like you have a problem, but you can do the work on yourself. Like, and we always say, (laughs) always say this, like um, when, when we're working those steps that Russell writes about in his book, and you get to the end of the problem and you feel like, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. There's always a little joke about, wouldn't it be great if everyone was on a program? And it would, you don't, you know, but look, that's neither here nor there, but I would recommend that book to people if there was any, you know, question about what goes on with these 12 steps that people talk about. Well, I think life is a journey of self-discovery and that's the opportunity for all of us is to never stop growing, never stop learning. Mm-hmm. As I say, never stop starting. And whether you're in recovery or not, we're mm-hmm. all living our lives. Yeah. And then I suppose the third one then, um, the third one for me is, I think, to find out what your purpose is, you know, mm. what you're passionate about more so than purpose, maybe. Because my work that I do or that I pursue or that I try to continue to do is the most, like, maybe not the right thing to say, but it's probably the most important thing in my life. It you lights know? you up. It does. It's it's everything. It's everything to me, you know, and I've I've, I've walked my own path and, and done my own, or, or, or kind of carved my own journey. I haven't done it the tr- traditional way, but th- I think that's okay as well. You know, and um, it's something I can be proud of. So, you know, those are the, those will be the three things for me. And and finally for you, Tony, what's the meaning of life? To be happy. Mm. I don't even have to think about that. I think it's to be happy. And I think happiness comes from love. And I don't mean like love, romantic love. I mean, like I thought love was only the word that you said to someone that you're in a relationship with. Love, I'm discovering, is like a kind of state of mind. It's a being. It's a thing mm-hmm. in itself. It's an, it's an object thing. Love is a, you know, it's a phase or whatever you want to say. And I try not to be too philosophical or jerky about this, but like, it's not just, I love you, you love me, we're in love. It's not that like, it's just doing things with love, whether it be work, like putting, you know, mm. there's a Greek word called meraki and it's like to put a scent, put, to put some of yourself in everything that you do. Beautiful. You know, I have a tattooed on my chest even, uh, but like that's, that's love, you know, mm. you're, you're, it's to do everything with love. And, and and that doesn't necessarily mean with kindness and too sweet to be wholesome because I'm not that person. But, you know, I do feel like to be happy, you need to try and come from a place of love with everything. And nobody's perfect. You know, it's really hard to be that way every day. But if you're not that day one day, maybe the next day you try and be mm. it and you go back and say sorry if you have to or whatever. But like I just like I said earlier, like there's no there's no anything without gratitude. So to be happy, you have to have gratitude as well. But I've had a couple of days of happiness now since I since I came out of rehab, and I and this is going to probably sound mad. Like I genuinely don't think I knew what happiness was before I don't know December 2020. I don't think I knew what happiness was. I don't think I I definitely knew didn't know what love was. You know, but um. And you're still learning. Oh God, and I will continue to learn. Hopefully I have a couple of years left anyway after I turn 37 next month. I just think to be happy is the meaning of life because I've experienced happiness and there's nothing like it. Well, Tony, it's been a pleasure having you in the doctor's chair. Keep leading, keep loving, keep entertaining, and most importantly, keep staying true to yourself. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. 
For further resources to support you to live with more vitality, please visit my website, drmarkrow.com.